Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. All right, Michael here. I am trying something a little bit different with this episode. I'm trying a solo episode at the encouragement of my producer, Ginny. And so I thought today, being uh, January 21st of 21, three days before January 24th, um, is a appropriate time to give this a shot. January 24th is the anniversary of my little sister, Samantha's death. And this 24th will make six years that she's passed away. So I thought I'd spend a little bit of time discussing that experience and the journey that it's placed me on, because in many ways, that's been a big inspiration for the stories that I like to explore on this podcast thus far. And as this is just a big experimentation in many respects for me, I uh, figured, why not dive in? So I'll share that story and I will then share some of my learnings and growth and development from there. And to the extent that anyone that listens to this wants to engage around those things, uh, as always, please feel free to reach out. So on January 24th, um, 2015, I was out at a bar with some friends and got uh, several missed calls from uh, my sister, Samantha. I noticed them and so texted her, you know, I was in some place that I couldn't talk. Could I talk to her later? And calls kept coming from, uh, from another number as well. And somebody else reached out to me saying that something had happened. So uh, I immediately got concerned, tried calling Samantha back and wound up getting through to somebody at the hospital just outside of Phoenix. And they informed me uh, right there on the phone while I was uh, out that Smith had been in an accident and didn't make it. So that was probably the worst moment of my life. And uh, to the extent it's not, maybe there's another moment in these series of events that, that was, but uh, that was truly awful. I immediately walked out of the bar. My mind was reeling. I got in an Uber. And as the Uber drove me home, I was scream crying in the back of that car. I often wonder what that experience must have been like for that Uber driver. But uh, I, I don't know that I've ever been that hysterical. And I got home. And people who were in Arizona, uh, which is where Samantha was living at the time, you know, started reaching out to me because word spread that uh, something might have happened. So I talked to her best friend, Chris, 
I filled him on the news, uh, in on the news, and I uh, told a few limited folks in, in my circle at the time. But I was, I was really uh, reeling and I didn't know what to do. I reached out to a young lady I was dating at the time and uh, she was out of town, but our, uh, our CrossFit coach came over and he was very, very helpful for me in that, uh, in that period of time. But, uh, I was extremely hysterical and I had never experienced anything like this. The idea of this person who was so central to my life, not being there is, uh, was very, very difficult to fathom. I was going in and out of periods of uh, sort of being lucid and not, but ultimately what I realized was that, you know, the way that I had found out was not acceptable for me to, for my parents to find out that way. And the hospital kept calling me and asking for my parents' contact information so that they could call them and tell them. And I kept declining to do that. I was not willing for that to happen. Um, I think as soon as I started realizing, you know, what had happened to my sister and as a result, what had happened to my family, I was terrified of what this would do to my parents and um, terrified of this reality. And I also knew that the learning this news without my being there would be awful as well. So I uh, kept looking for flights and I tried to get the the earliest flight back home, uh, well, back to my parents' home uh, as I was living in Denver at the time, but back to California as possible. And fortunately, I couldn't find one as fast as I wanted to, but I was on a plane by the following morning, not having slept much and was hysterical the whole way over on the plane and uh, had to have a car. I secured a, a town car to pick me up and drive me because I was in no shape to drive myself the 90 minutes or so from the airport to my parents' house. And that was a terrible experience. Uh, again, you can't imagine what that must have been like for the driver. I had, uh, because we were in the car for a while, I, I sort of gave him a, a high-level overview of what was going on. And as we neared my uh, parents' house, my parents have a long driveway, I asked him to pull over at the top of the driveway because this, uh, what I was facing was far and away the most difficult thing that I had ever endeavored to do. And to this day, almost six years later now, I think it's, it's the most difficult thing I've ever done. And I was, you know, at the time I was terrified of what would happen to my parents. I was terrified that this news might cause their, their health to deteriorate. I was, I was terrified of losing them and, and being alone. And so I, uh, actually called the, uh, uh, security in their community, which uh, had a, a first aid a certification and asked them to, to stand by just in case, you know, I think that's what my adult brain at the time was, was focused on. So I, I walked into the house and 
went and found them in their office together. And when they first saw me, they were delighted because they had no idea I was coming. And I, I, I remember that, that look in their faces of pleasant surprise, but I saw that fall very quickly as soon as they saw me and saw my face and recognized that something was amiss. And I, uh, you know, I told them that, that Samantha had, had been in an accident and, uh, and I told them that, uh, she hadn't, she didn't make it. And so that was, uh, that, um, that and, uh, initially hearing the news for the first time was, uh, I think the worst thing I've ever experienced. So from there, we were all hysterical and trying to figure out what was next, but it, at least the three of us were together and trying to figure out, do we go there or somehow do something else? So we wound up, we wound up staying put and what happened shortly thereafter was Samantha's dear, dear friend and coach and roommate Chris, uh, he flew out to Carmel to be with us and he stayed that whole first week with myself and, and my parents. And it was, uh, it was the four of us and it was really, um, just, uh, an incredible show of, of support and solidarity. If you think about being with, uh, a family after that kind of loss, while well, it's that fresh and that uh, that painful, and he had just lost his best friend, but he was there with us through that first week, and I'll I'll never forget that. I'm uh, just unbelievably supportive. I think, uh, especially for me, but really my whole family. And so through that week, we started making funeral arrangements and thinking through getting Samantha back to, back to California. And really, I just, I did not, the thought occurred to me then, and it's as true now as it is then, but I did not know that pain like that existed in the universe. It's the kind of thing where you understand it intellectually. You understand that terrible things happen all over the world that, uh, people endure hardship all the time. You know, I had my grandparents survive Auschwitz and, uh, Siberian labor camps. So certainly intellectually understood that just awful things happen, but I didn't really know what pain was until I experienced this. And it was, it's, it's so difficult to, to even explain what that experience is like, I think, unless someone goes through something like that, I think it's, it's very hard to understand. And it'll, for me, it involved a lot of just, uh, just screaming into the void and rejecting the reality that, uh, I, I now occupied and it just an unimaginable amount of pain as the, that week wore on friends and family started to come from all over the country and, and congregate and, uh, were there to support it was interesting though, because I started to grow resentful of, uh, of some of it, especially initially, because I felt like 
there was a certain amount of co-opting our pain that these people would come be there for us and then leave. And we would still be there with the same set of circumstances. Our family would still be disfigured and without our, our heart and soul that was Samantha. And that was something that I, I really struggled with quite a bit. And I was having a hard time and they called in a, a grief counselor for me. And I remember him uh, clearly one of these types of people that is typically attached to hospice care and, you know, dealing with folks who have lost their, their grandparents, that sort of thing. I remember him saying something along the lines of, gosh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be you right now. And I just, uh, <laughs> I, I thought to myself, what is this guy doing here? I, I you know, I'm just not, not providing the least uh, bit of support. And so I really struggled with a tremendous amount of anger and pain through that process. I had a hard time being around anybody other than my very closest friends or interestingly, Samantha's closest friends or my parents. As, as time wore on, a few days wore on, we, um, we planned the funeral that took place at the high school that we both attended at uh, a chapel there. And as we started to make those plans, uh, this idea of I want to do what Samantha would want. I want to be a good brother. I want to be a good son. Those things became really, really important to me. And I started agonizing over, you know, the fact that Samantha would know what to do in this scenario and I would not, and I, and I didn't. And I thought I started thinking quite a bit about the desire to, I would, you know, I wish the, the tables were turned. I wish it was me and not her. And uh, just thinking through how much better she was at uh, supporting people and um, uh, caring for people emotionally worried that, you know, she would be a much uh, more supportive child to my parents than I would. And that was something I also wrestled with quite a bit. But we got to the funeral and there was a lovely man who has since passed, but uh, his name was Dr. Roland, who helped us administer that. And I had written Samantha's eulogy. I also wrote a piece that we wound up publishing in the Wall Street Journal, among other places, about her life and the internal joke between, I guess, myself and <laughs> my now dead sister was that she she got into the Wall Street Journal long before long before I did. Um, that's uh, still not something that's uh, I've accomplished, nor is it something that uh, I spend much time thinking about. But at the time, that felt really good to me. So we had the funeral and, and somehow I was able to get up and speak in front of this packed audience. And I only vaguely remember that, that period of time because I was just blind with grief and we had gone through all these details around who was going to read, what was going to happen, how the process would go. And fortunately, there were people around us that could help us with that. But there are all these administrative details 
when you're dealing with death and uh, the event. Celebration of her life was certainly one of them. The details around what to do with with her body and and those sorts of things were also a big part of it that I really wanted to shield my parents from as much as possible. So I was doing my best to to do those arrangements, not to say they they weren't part of them, but uh, that uh, that stood out as something that was very important to me. So anyway, I got up to speak at uh, the funeral and, and I did so and I, uh, I eulogized her and as did a number of her friends and there were just so many people there. It was, it was mind boggling to see, you know, she was 24 years old when she passed, but she had already touched so many lives. She was a, a gym owner, a coach, a friend, a uh, mentor to so many. And uh, whether it was her, her Carmel community, her Arizona community, her uh, CrossFit community or weightlifting community, or her time spent on the, on the East coast as well for part of her high school experience. It just, it was truly amazing how many people came together. And afterwards we, we hosted a reception at our, our family home in Carmel and I was struck by how many people came up to me and thanked me. I thought it was very, very strange, but they thanked me for being so open and, and honest and airing my, my raw emotion and uh, speaking from the heart about my sister. And as people continued to come up to me and, and say that, you know, they, they offered condolences, but, but specifically this, this notion of, of thanking me for sharing, it really, really struck me because, you know, up to that point, I had been, uh, Samantha and I were, uh, as many siblings are, very different in the way that we saw the world and interacted with people. We were close, but she was very emotive, very warm, wore her heart on her sleeve and made friends everywhere she went. Whereas I tended to be much more cerebral. I probably would, would not be described as coming off as a, as a warm person, though I had many close friendships. And I also, up to that point, probably equated emotion or open displays of emotion with, with weakness and had that kind of um, very limiting juvenile sense of, of masculinity or control but also I think wrongly placed rationality, cold rationality above all things. And I realized that this open display of, of emotion was something that really, really resonated with people and connected with people. And my anger that I had been feeling up to that point at all these people coming into our life really started to recede as I was able to connect with folks and really share emotionally with people, it was, it was this very odd experience for me, but kind of like a light bulb went off. And it was probably the first of many of these sort of grace notes that I feel like are lasting gifts from my sister, where I began from that moment on 
to appreciate the full spectrum of sort of the human experience and how much I had been limiting myself up to that point. And I, I think part of that is just the, the intense pain broke open those uh, doors of perception, if you will. But I felt, you know, that was probably the best I had felt since, since Samantha had died. And it's funny, I always remember milling about the house with all these people. And every time I saw a flash of blonde hair, I thought I was, I was seeing her for a moment. It was very strange, but you know, it's this place that we grew up together and you expect to see her there. You know, you see it out of the corner of your eye and keep, keep looking and she's not there. And I think the, the mind plays these strange tricks on you when you're, when you're dealing with something like that. But that was, uh, that was really the beginning of a lot of eye-opening experiences and soul searching and, and personal growth for me, despite just the, just the tremendous amount of pain. Also, I always remember one of the things a, a mentor at the time said to me when I was commenting on my sort of shock at uh, the realization of how pain exists in the world or how I was uh, my capacity for feeling pain, I think uh, what I, is what I was talking about because I didn't realize I had the capacity for it, which again goes back to, I, I think, probably a stunted level of emotional growth at the time. I was, I was 27 uh, when Samantha was 24. And he said, well, if you have the capacity to feel this much pain, that must also mean that you have the capacity to feel the, the same amount of love or joy. And I thought that was a comforting statement uh, at the time and an, an interesting one that I've also, I've often pondered since then. But as I was there experiencing all these things, I was, uh, I was also struck by how appreciative I was of the relationships in my life and the relationships that my family had. So many people reached out and were supportive of us. The, the community that my parents lived in, my dear friends from growing up, from college, um, from elsewhere. I mean, the, the amount of love that was brought to our doorstep as a result of this was, was also overwhelming. And I'll never forget the, the people that were there for me during that time that were crying with me and, uh, you know, so many people in my life uh, knew, knew Samantha well as well. And then I'll also uh, never forget the, the bond that was immediately formed with all of her dear friends who, quite frankly, I knew a lot of, but were more on the periphery of, of my life and were only folks that I would see if I was uh, spending time with my sister. And so as time went on, people went home. Uh, fortunately I had a, a, a few friends that were from the area that we're staying in. And so, you know, continued to be able to, to see a few of them. I think a few folks stuck around for a period of time. I spent an enormous amount of time in the, in the coastal hills of that area. And I spent a lot of time just walking in the forest, but as time went on, I, really started thinking about, and, and with the help of um, 
with the help of, of some therapy, really started thinking about uh, life quite a lot. What I had lost, of course, the intense pain, of course, you know, you go through something like that and it's like waking up every morning and an elephant is sitting on your chest and uh, you're, you're waking up to a reality that you completely reject. And it's those moments between sleep and wakefulness were awful because it's you're reliving that realization all over again. And I was trying, I remember, you know, writing quite a bit at the time. I loved studying philosophy. I loved studying about life, but I found this incredible dissatisfaction with so many of the ideals that I held dear because I found no solace there. There is no amount of reasoning that sort of helped me navigate that pain. And I was frustrated as well because I always felt as though I was an articulate person, but I could not articulate what I was going through. I was, I was writing and, and reading and it, it's like this thing that you're trying to expel out of your articulate. And, um, and I was having just such a difficult time doing it. And, you know, you start, you start reading the stuff. I, would, I found that that poetry did, did a good job of, of explaining quite a lot. And, and there were, there were things I, I found here and there, but it's funny how with these really deep existential questions and dealing with pain like this, that all these cliches exist. And of course, you know, it's the old saying of cliches exist for a reason, but it never was that more obvious or profound as it was during this period of time. I remember shortly after the funeral, I was still in Carmel, a dear friend's father who lived in the area took me to breakfast and I had learned that I had not known this about him. This was a dear friend I grew up with, but he lost two siblings to, uh, they were triplets. So two brothers. And we talked about this experience of, of losing siblings. And that was a, an incredibly helpful conversation. And I found that this, this was a, a very unique thing that, that only certain people could, could empathize with. Um, I, I said at the time, a lot of people sympathize, but it's very difficult to empathize. And I think my parents found the same thing when it came to the subject of, of losing children. But you wind up entering a, a club of sorts of people who unfortunately know very well what you're going through. And that was the, the first of a number of conversations I had with, with different people about uh, sharing, sharing the experience. But it's, it's almost like being on the other side of a veil. I recall growing up there, there was one instance in particular of a young man who was in our high school that tragically lost his life in a car accident, just like Samantha did. And I remember being very sad about it. But I also remember not liking to really dwell on it. His mother was a friend of my mother's and I always felt a certain amount of, of fear 
spending, or maybe not fear, but, but discomfort spending time with her because there was there, you know, there was the perceived pain in her eyes. And I remember that woman really being there for my mom quite a bit. And I, I went up to her and I said, I don't know if, if it ever registered with you. I'm sure it, it hasn't, but I'm sorry because I was, I was afraid of you for a long time because of that pain that I saw. And I, I now, I now know it very well. And I remember that being a, um, a cathartic moment for me, but it's really, I think it's this concept of the curtain being pulled back in a lot of ways, because you understand more about pain, you understand more about the, the brevity of life. And even though you know, these things exist, it's, I think that, that pain, that, that helps you really appreciate it. And so this set me off on quite a journey of exploration after weeks at home with my parents, I wound up setting off on some travels and I did a few events for Samantha in different parts of the country and, you know, spent time in Arizona, spent time in the Boston area, spent time in New York. And as I traveled to different places and, and spent time with, with her friends and some family friends, I was determined to break down my life and rebuild it. Because one of the conclusions I reached is, you know, Smith and I had so many plans for life that we would share together. I was very determined to commit myself to this idea of living a life that was big enough for both of us and squeezing as much life into whatever time I had left because this idea of time being very, very limited was explicitly demonstrated to me. And so I really took stock of where I was in my life, what I was doing, how I wanted to be. I took stock of the lessons that I was learning that Samantha had left there for me about embracing the whole spectrum of life, both the emotional and the rational side. I started to grasp the newly formed power of connecting emotionally with other people. And that sounds so, I think, silly to say in some ways, because of course that's a natural human basis for interaction, but it wasn't really something I, I appreciated a lot until that point in time. So I was uh, fortunate to reach out to a lot of people who I respected and admired, both for the way that they lived their life and what they accomplished in their life. And it's fortunate to have, have a lot of, a lot of mentors or, or people willing to give me advice. And I, I traveled around and I had a lot of conversations during that time and talked about life and talked about work and talked about pain. And it was just in hindsight, such a valuable period of time for me in terms of setting me on a path of self-discovery and, and personal growth. One of my mentors said, you know, you're having a, 
a midlife crisis at 27 years old. So a lot of people don't ask the questions you're asking until middle age. And I thought that was, <laughs> that was a, a, maybe a humorous way to look at it, but it certainly sped up my development and emotional, spiritual, intellectual growth and understanding of human beings and the human condition. And it's something that, that continues today, but, and I, I continue to be on a journey where I'm, I'm growing and developing, hopefully in productive ways, but certainly feel like I'm continuing to learn, continuing to grow. But this journey is, is so much one that, that started at this point of, of losing Samantha. It's, I think in many ways, my life before and after is just, is so different because of how I chose to pursue knowledge, pursue principles. I mentioned earlier that I had a hard time finding solace in the things that I had read or the things that I had learned up to that point. And nothing was really bringing it to me until somebody recommended the book to us, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And I remember reading that book as I was traveling around. And at the time, I spent a lot of time crying in airports and on trains. And I, <laughs> it's an odd, odd memory, but uh, it just uh, I recall that happening a lot. And I would, I would be reading this book and, and crying while I traveled around different places. But there, there's so much uh, rich thinking about life in the human condition there. But I remember one quote that I took away that, that is uh, still really important to me. And that was one that, that Frankel references Dostoevsky and paraphrasing. He says that my only concern in life is that I may be worthy of my suffering. And at the time that really, really struck me because there was just this tremendous amount of, of pain and suffering that I was going through, but it was also happening in parallel with all this seeming understanding and, and growth about, about life and about being. And that, that really started a, an appreciation for me of this correlation between pain and growth. And I came to realize that years later, but I came to realize that the growth was probably my highest ideal personal growth, professional growth. As long as I'm, as long as I'm growing, I'm feeling good at least about where I am and uh, where my life is going. But I'll always be grateful for all the people that uh, took the time to give me advice and, and really talk through life. And while I had had mentors in the past, this again was a realization for me of how willing people are to connect and to share and to help if you go to them earnestly and you do so with a certain amount of vulnerability. So that was a huge unlock for me. 
And as I continued to do that, I realized that all these people that I looked up to, they had all suffered. They had all had missteps. They had all had challenges. Some had varying levels of painful experiences, but they were all there. And I realized that there was a lot of this overcoming of hardship theme in these people I was, I was asking for help thinking through life with. And so that theme has become very important to me. And as I continued to, to go from there, it led me on the journey of, of thinking through more Stoic philosophy, thinking through, I had always loved existentialism, but really thinking through the importance of how you respond to a given set of circumstances and how that can bring meaning to your life. And that was really illustrated to me because when I had come out of that, that period of time of going to my parents, dealing with the funeral and, um, and dealing with everything else that came afterwards, I realized that I had a certain sense of pride about the experience. I was, I was proud of the way that I was there for my parents. I was proud of the way that I was there for my sister and it was interesting because I realized I hadn't been proud of myself for really quite a long time. I, any supposed accomplishments I did have, whether it was school or profession or what have you, and they were, for me, they were expected. I felt like there was, there was either meeting expectations or disappointment, but there was not, there wasn't a lot of, I hadn't experienced at least for the time I didn't feel like I had experienced a lot of, a lot of pride. And I realized that the way that I handled that series of events, I felt a tremendous amount of pride about, and I felt, I felt good about it. I mean, it was, it was a terrible, terrible thing, but I did feel as though I comported myself in a way that, that honored my sister, that, that supported my parents. And it was really an interesting realization. So this journey has, has really continued up to today. And I have continued to find principles that I want to live by, continued to really think about this correlation between pain and growth. I've realized that it applies professionally as much as it does personally in my my professional challenges. Very similarly, it's it's the it's the more painful ones that are typically the most useful in the, in the learning process. And the more that I can be open about these things and vulnerable about these things, the more I'm able to connect with, with people professionally, I find. And it's really all been, it's all been very similar in terms of the, the personal and professional life. And I still sense Samantha's absence so much, so much of her characteristics. I've, I've thought about how I can incorporate in my own life, but I, uh, when my wife and I recently lost our, our daughter who came early and I remember thinking, and this was eight weeks ago, maybe 10 weeks ago. And I remember thinking, I want to pick up the phone and call Samantha. And six years later, I still have 
those inclinations, those little thoughts in my head, like, oh, I, Samantha would really like this. Or I, I go to have the inclination to pick up the phone and call Samantha. And that thought registers before the following thought of, you know, well, she's not here. And it's, it continues to be a very, very difficult experience. And especially now thinking through hopefully having a family and uh, getting married and, you know, a lot of these life events that you are with your family for, those were all the things that when I lost Samantha, when we lost Samantha, you're losing as well. I've talked about this with some people before, but you lose that person in your life, but you also lose a certain amount of identity with it as well, because your identity is often relationally based to the people in your life, the things in your life, the accomplishments in your life, the any litany of things. And while Buddhist teaching might uh, suggest that you work on thinking about the I that exists beyond all of those things, which I think is a useful, a useful exercise. It's still reality. It's very difficult, I think, to, to divorce yourself from those identities. And certainly at the time, my identity was very profoundly tied to those things. And so you lose this, this person that's part of you and part of your family. And you grow up thinking, you know, family is the most important thing. Being an older brother is the most important thing, setting a good example and, and helping my, my sister and thinking through the way that, that we would want to interact with each other as we grow older and looking at the way that my parent, you know, our parents and, and their siblings interact and drawing conclusions from there and thinking through each other's weddings and each other's spouses and each other's kids it's just, you know, even six years later, it's something that that absence is profound. But at the same time, the path of growth and learning and development that I've been on is is equally profound. I'd certainly give it all up to have Samantha back, just even for a day. But I do my best to honor her through the way that I live my life. And not every day is is perfect, certainly not. But I do think about how can I live a principled existence? How can I go out and address as many challenges that that might be confronting me as possible and, and keep learning and keep growing as a result of that? And how can I honor my my sister's energy and, and memory? Named named a business after her continue to think about philanthropic efforts that are that are done in in her name and think about often now you know the stories that hopefully my my children will know about uh, their wonderful aunt we're looking forward to having another memorial weightlifting meet for her doing her memorial workout again and I still, especially around this time of year, hear from so many people who Samantha has profoundly impacted. And I, I continue to just be blown away at her impact at you know, 24 years on this planet and how dearly missed she is. But it's really my, my inspiration for exploring a lot of these themes and the fact that they continue to get confirmed for, through my experiences as I progress through life. 
most recently, again, you know, dealing with the loss of a baby. It's interesting the way that I'm, I think, to a certain extent, conditioned to be able to support my, my spouse through that experience and a bit of an understanding of, of the grief process and something that, that we've actually talked about, you know, but for my experiences, you know, we'd be able to, to navigate this in the, in the same way. And so I hope that by candidly exploring these topics can drive more discussion around them, more empathy around them, more connection around them. And I find the exploration of these topics to be deeply productive and and meaningful to me. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity to share them into the void and, uh, you know, to the extent that anybody connects on them. I think that's great, but this feels like a, a good time to share this story. And I often, you know, write and share stories of Samantha on this upcoming anniversary time. So to the extent anyone wants to discuss, I am always open to discuss these things more. And um, I hope that doing doing so is productive for folks, that, that listening to this might be productive to, folk, to folks. Certainly my sitting here and talking about it, I think, has has felt good to me. And it's a nice time to reflect and, and really think about my sister. So with that, I will sign off and thank you for listening. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com, and you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.